Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called The Decalogue, Ten Words on Life, Love, and Justice. It's a guest essay by David Gill. David earned his Ph.D. at University of Southern California and is an organizational ethics consultant. He's the author of seven published books, including the book Doing Right, Practicing Ethical Principles. <clears throat> the essay is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October the 5th, 2008. There was a time when I was clueless about the Decalogue, from the two Greek words deca, meaning ten, and logos, meaning word. To be precise, as a newly minted professor of Christian ethics at the age of 34, I was challenged by Professor Klaus Bachmuehl of Regent College in Vancouver to take a careful look at the Ten Commandments as I constructed my courses. Born and raised in a dispensationalist theological framework, then migrating to a hardcore Anabaptist theology and ethics, I viewed myself as a so-called New Testament Christian and thought of law as old school, and grace as what's happening now. But the more I immersed myself in what scripture itself actually said, and let it challenge the assumptions of my theological tradition, the more I began to value and understand the ten words of Moses. <clears throat> I like the formula of Karl Barth that, quote, the law is the form of the gospel, and the gospel of grace is the content of law. End quote. The form or letter of the law by itself is a hard condemning message. But the content requires a form, a structure to mediate that content into our daily experience. The law is like a cup. The gospel is the coffee. If you have the cup without the coffee, the empty cup just reminds you of your thirst and what you're missing. But if you have the coffee in no cup, it is, practically speaking, impossible to get the coffee into your lived experience. Most of us have heard that the great reformer Martin Luther opposed law and gospel. But what he opposed was cups without coffee, if I may extend the metaphor from above. There was a lot of cup talk and not much coffee talk by the time Luther came along in the 16th century. But in his larger catechism, Luther says that whoever knows the Ten Commandments perfectly knows the whole of Scripture. And remember that St. Paul himself says in Romans and Galatians that despite how difficult its problems, we do not set aside the law, we embrace it only with a renewed understanding. <clears throat> I've come to appreciate four interpretive angles on the Ten Words. The Ten, the ten Commandments are in themselves the covenant between God and His people. They were kept and carried around in the Ark of the Covenant. They are the terms and conditions and guidelines of a covenant relationship. I will be your God, 
you will be my people. And here's how we'll treat each other. So, first of all, the Ten Commandments are the ten ways we express love to God. Both the Old Testament Shema in Deuteronomy 6.5 and Jesus in Matthew 22 verse 37 teach that the law is all about loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. All the commandments hang on this love command. Second, both the Holiness Code in Leviticus and Jesus in the Gospels teach that the law is also about loving one's neighbor as oneself. And note carefully that it's not just the first half of the Ten Commandments that are love commands and the second half the love the neighbor commands. All Ten Commands are simultaneously ways to love God and love your neighbor at the same time. Paul makes this same point in Romans 13, 8 to 10. <clears throat> Consider two examples. The first command, you shall have no other gods before me, is not just good for God. It's an act of love for my neighbor. Why? Because it's good for my neighbor, for me not to make money or power my God. It's good for my neighbor, for me to maintain the gracious, forgiving Yahweh as my God. It's good for my neighbor that my God is the creator of all people, all nations, both sexes, and that he's not some petty tribal deity. Or a second example. <clears throat> Certainly it is loving to my neighbor that I not kill him or her. But the sixth commandment is just as certainly about loving God. I must not kill my neighbor, not just because my neighbor wouldn't like that, but because God is the giver of my neighbor's life. I cannot be loving God if I kill those who belong to him. But there's an even deeper level to this twofold interpretation and application. One of the most basic of all biblical theological affirmations is that man and woman are created in the image and likeness of their creator-redeemer God. In some very profound ways, then, men and women are like their God. For example, like God, people have a will to create things, a desire for relationships, a value of beauty as well as usefulness, a capacity to communicate by word, and so on. If this is the case, when we learn the basic movements and components in loving God, we're also learning the basic movements in loving our neighbor made in the image of God. What God wants, we also want in some deeply profound sense. A third interpretive angle. The Ten Commandments are ten principles of justice and righteousness. This is familiar territory. God's love lays down his righteous, holy standards, the right thing to do in his eyes. So we can say that it's an act of love to make God the only one, the first commandment. But it's equally true to say that God has a right to sit on that divine throne in my life. <clears throat> 
It's simply unfair and unjust not to let God be God. So, too, it's loving to protect life, the sixth commandment. But it's equally true to say that God alone has the right to give and take human life and that people have a right to life as they stand before us in the world. And fourth, the Ten Commandments are ten principles of life and freedom. As the prologue in Exodus 20 so clearly indicates, the Decalogue is ten words from God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In contrast to dispensational theology, the Old Testament does not teach that if you keep the commandments, I'll be your God and deliver you from bondage. No, the redemption from Egypt and adoption as God's people happens by grace and by God's initiative before the law is given. The law's primary function is to outline how to stay free and live out the life of love and justice in relationship with each other and with God. I think of the Ten Commandments sometimes as ten warning signs to keep us away from potential slave masters ready to ruin our freedom. For example, nationalism, the command, the first commandment to have no other gods, or sexual addiction, commands 7 and 10, to say no to adultery, unbridled lust, and sexual fantasy. Or the sixth commandment about murder, to repudiate violence and retaliation. Or the commandment number four about the Sabbath, as it relates to being workaholics. With this background in mind, then, here's what we find in each of the ten principles, or ten words. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. The first way we love God is to make him the only one. It's the principle of exclusivity in the unique place. He has a right to that place of worship and centrality in our lives. This choice is also good for our neighbors, as indicated above because it sets us free from inferior and false gods. And it teaches us the basic principle that our spouses, kids, friends, and employees each need to have their own unique place of value in our lives. Not God's place, but certainly their place of value that no one else can threaten or occupy. Number two, you shall not make for yourself idols or images of any kind. The second way we love God is by letting him be free and alive, by not substituting some fixed image, whether artistic, theological, or cultural, in place of his dynamic living presence, speaking, listening, and acting in our daily lives. This is a living God. So too, people made in God's image our spouses, kids, and colleagues, they thrive when we let them be alive and growing, and they shrink and suffer when we create images and stereotypes of them. Number four, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. 
The first act of communication is to say the name of the other. Saying it often enough and saying it with respect is what sets the stage for the relationship. Don't use names in an empty, vain fashion. Learn the name. Speak it with respect. The third way you love God or those made in his image. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The fourth way we love God is to take time off, quality time every week to be with him. Yes, we love God by working for him, but that's not enough. He wants to be loved by our stopping to take time with him. The same principle for loving anyone made in God's image. Work for them. Take some time to be with them. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you. Honor those who have been God's agents to bring you life and truth. Luther saw this as broadly meaning respect for all authorities, political, ecclesiastical, family, and otherwise. I see it more as agent than authority. Ideally, parents are those who bring you life, care, teaching, and encouragement. Anybody who plays those roles, however imperfectly, is to be honored. That shows love to the one who sent those agents into our lives. <clears throat> The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. We love God by protecting the life and existence of his creatures. These lives belong to God, not to us. For Luther and Calvin, this meant feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, healing the sick, calming disputes, not just refraining from shooting or knifing your enemy. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. What God has joined together, let no one put asunder. We love God by protecting the covenant relationships he's allowed or guided into existence. Marriage is the main symbol of such relationships. Adultery is wrong because it's a brutal attack upon and violation of a covenanted relationship established by God. More broadly, we protect and nurture the relationships of friends, parent, and child. Number eight, you shall not steal. We protect the material infrastructure of people's lives. In addition to our physical existence and our core relationships, we all need food, clothing, shelter, and other material things. We are not disembodied spirits hovering around the planet. And God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's an act of love and justice toward God and toward his creatures that we protect people's stuff rather than try to take it from them. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. People need their reputation, and they need truth in order to have any kind of chance at life. 
We love God by avoiding falsehood and slander and gossip, and by being people who speak the truth in love. <clears throat> and finally, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. To conclude, we live in a world in which our thoughts, intentions, attitudes, and spirituality are of fundamental importance. We love God by seeking a pure heart that thinks and wills the best for God and for our neighbors, and even for our enemies. We avoid anger, greed, lust, jealousy, envy, prejudice, and the other deeply corrupting sins of mind and spirit. This is the tenth way, the tenth word, by which we love God in the tenth act of love for our fellow human beings. David Gill, The Decalogue, Ten Words on Life, Love, and Justice. <clears throat> for books this week, we have a book review of David Gill's book. The title of Gill's book is Doing Right, Practicing Ethical Principles, Downers Grove, Illinois, InterVarsity Press, 2004. This is a book review by Scott McKnight, the Carl A. Olson Professor in Religious Studies at North Park University. The review appeared in the Covenant Companion, the monthly magazine of the Evangelical Covenant Church. A review of David Gill's book, Doing Right, by Scott McKnight. In this witty, insightful follow-up of his previous book, the title of which was Becoming Good, David Gill, former professor of philosophy and ethics at North Park University, provides for pastors as well as laypersons a wise study of the Ten Commandments. It's refreshing to see someone take up the task of describing biblical ethics by going straight to the source itself, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. It's becoming a regularly observed feature of historical studies about Judaism and Jesus that Jews of the ancient world began their day and ended their day with the sacred rhythm of reciting the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Ten Commandments, in a litany of prayer requests called Ha Tepila. This historical conclusion only strengthens the need for a book like Doing Right. And the historic studies of the Ten Commandments, as well as French seminal studies, in more recent commentaries have been mined and richly quoted throughout Gill's text. The one who uses Doing Right will be exposed to a history of comments on the Ten Commandments. Gill begins doing right by exploring the analogy of maps and our need of them with the Ten Commandments as a map for life. But contrary to what perhaps many of us grew up with, the Ten Commandments are not simply a list of things to do and not to do, but instead are what Gill calls area principles. So-called cover principles are rules or moral claims that cover all of life. And Gill sees four such principles, loving God, loving others, pursuing justice, 
and freedom. And then area principles make cover principles concrete, relevant, and practical. And so the Ten Commandments are what he calls area principles. What's perhaps most exciting about doing right is that Gill explores the Ten Commandments through the lens of how each one of them makes the four cover principles concrete. <clears throat> Those who study the Ten Commandments through these four principles will find that they have learned more about the commandment and will find more inherent value in each commandment than any who studies each as simply rules and laws to be obeyed. Put simply, Gill explores how the commandment to honor one's father and mother expresses love for God, love for others, justice, and freedom. I recommend this book for junior high and high school Sunday school teachers, for Bible study groups, and for laypersons who know it's time to return to the source of Christian ethics. A book review by Scott McKnight, David Gill, Doing Right, Practicing Ethical Principles. For film this week, I review a film called Arranged from the year 2007. <clears throat> Rachel is a 22-year-old Orthodox Jew. Nasira is a Syrian Muslim. It would appear that they have very little in common, but that would not be true. Both Rachel and Nasira teach at a public school in Brooklyn, and they befriend each other as they both struggle with the tensions that arise between their conservative religious families and the larger secular world in which they live and work. Their principal makes fun of their religious values. Their students assume that all Jews and Muslims hate each other, and their families are visibly upset when they visit each other's home. These tensions come into sharp relief when both Rachel and Nasira negotiate the prospects of marriages that are strictly arranged by their families. This is a great movie about individual choice and personal identity within the greater push and pull of family, culture, gender roles, ethnicity, and, obviously, religion. The title of the film, Arranged. <clears throat> and finally, in keeping with the theme of Moses and the Ten Commandments, we've posted a poem called Aaron. The poem is by George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to 1633. Listen to George Herbert's poem entitled Aaron. Holiness on the head, light and perfections on the breast, harmonious bells below raising the dead to lead them unto life and rest. Thus are true errands dressed. Profaneness in my head, defects and darkness in my breast, a noise of passions ringing me for dead unto a place where there is no rest. Poor priest, thus am I dressed. Only another head I have, another heart and breast, 
another music making alive, not dead, without whom I could have no rest, in him I am well dressed. Christ is my only head, my alone only heart and breast, my only music striking me even dead, that to the old man I may rest, and be in him new dressed. So holy in my head, perfect and light in my dear breast, my doctrine tuned by Christ who is not dead, but lives in me while I do rest, come people, Aaron's dressed. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 5th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.